The reading of God's word this morning is from Paul's epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 to 18a. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all that rest in my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is truth, that brings life, that brings light into the darkness, that strengthens the weary soul, and that grows up our hearts into Christ. So Lord, we pray your blessing over the preaching of your word, that you would be glorified through it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, 150 years ago, most of sub-Saharan Africa was under spiritual darkness and paganism. At that time, and that's not very long ago, 150 years ago, at that time, Christianity had only made very small inroads into this continent. But God, in his sovereignty, through a series of great awakenings, in Europe and in America, it took place during the, the late 1700s and throughout a lot of the, the 1800s. Through those awakenings, God raised up thousands of missionaries who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth, including right here to South Africa. And one of these missionaries was a young man named Ernest Crew. And as a footnote, yes, he was my great-great-grandfather. He lived in the French-speaking part of Switzerland on the shores of Lake Geneva. And together with his wife, Matilda, they were called by the Lord as missionaries to South Africa. They came out here aged 27 and, and 23 respectively, and they arrived on African shores in 1872 after a three-week journey by sea. Okay, missionaries in those days, you were all in. You didn't, couldn't just take the next flight back home if you, if you weren't feeling a peace about it. Okay, you, you, you were here to stay. And for those missionaries, they understood that it was a lifelong calling. And, and, and they were, they went into that with their eyes open. So they left a comfortable life in Switzerland And they left all that was familiar to them, and they left it for the untamed African felt. At that, 150 years ago, it was a lot more untamed than it is 
at the moment. They spent a few years in Lesotho or Basotho land as it was at that time, and then they established um, a series of mission stations in the then northern Transvaal or modern-day Limpopo, and they evangelized the Tsonga tribe. That's one of our national languages, one of the 11 national languages today of South Africa. And at that stage, it was an unreached people group. But we need to understand that the cost was immense. It was a massive lifestyle change. They lost four of their children to tropical diseases. They lost fellow missionary friends as well who also died because of tropical diseases, malaria and things like that. They faced opposition from the Boer government. Yeah, they were arrested. They were put in prison for, for, for their mission work. They faced opposition even from some of the, the, the tribe, the, the, the tribal chiefs. But through it all, they faithfully preached the gospel. They translated, along with the help of other missionary friends, they translated the whole Bible into Tsonga. They established a church that is still going to this day. In fact, it's a Presbyterian church. And they finished the race strong, and they died in old age, not back where they came from in Switzerland, but here on African soil. Now, the story is not unique, because there were many other missionary stories just like this. These missionaries who came out from very comfortable lives in America and Europe, and they came to unknown darkest Africa, literally, and they paid dearly. Many of them lost loved ones, but you know what? They endured, and they faithfully preached the gospel, and the, their incredible sacrifices are in large part why sub-Saharan Africa is today majority Christian, and it's also the place, one of the few places in the world where Christianity is thriving and growing. So in our passage this morning, Paul, one of the pioneers of the early church, a missionary, he's been preaching the gospel. He's been planting churches all over the Mediterranean region. And as we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks, he is now paying a high price for faithfully preaching the gospel. So in, in this text, we see that he's, he's experiencing a twofold affliction. Now, firstly, he's locked up in jail. And secondly, other Christians are envious of his ministry and they're trying to spite him. So in the midst of all, Paul is not, we'll see, he's not down in the dumps feeling sorry for himself. No, what is he doing? Well, he's rejoicing. And why is he rejoicing? Well, Paul, like many of the missionaries who came to this continent, they understood how to glorify God in the midst of their trials. And so what we will see this morning is that because God works good through all things, we can rejoice in God and glorify him through our trials. So just two points this morning. First point is glorify God in your trials. And second point is gospel graciousness. So glorify God in your trials, gospel 
graciousness. So firstly, glorify God in your trials. Let's go back to verse 12. She says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, after praying for the Philippians, and we looked at this last week, Paul now shifts gear and he tells them what has happened to him okay, in, in, in this verse. So what has happened to Paul? Well, he's in prison. He's chained day and night to a Roman soldier. But here, and in the rest of the letter, we read absolutely nothing about the terrible prison food. We read nothing about the rats. We read nothing, nothing about the stinky and uncomfortable prison cell. We read nothing about the fact that he's got no privacy, that he can't even relieve himself without somebody watching him. Instead, we find Paul is completely preoccupied with Christ and his gospel. Well, how so? Well, he explains in verse 12 that precisely because he is in jail, the gospel has been advancing. Now, note his language here. He doesn't say that the gospel has advanced in spite of his imprisonment. No, it's, it's, he says it's advancing because he's there. Well, in what way? Well, let's look at the next verse. Verse 13 says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, in prison, Paul has been provided with a captive audience. Okay, they can't leave his side. <laughs> they can't run away and, uh, you know, ignore him. Okay, he's got all these soldiers uh, to himself there. So instead of, of sulking and feeling sorry for himself, well... Paul realizes he's got this golden gospel opportunity and you can only imagine Paul's going to do what Paul's going to do. So he's been relentlessly preaching the gospel to them. And he's been preaching to them so much that now it says here in the text that the entire imperial God, okay, the Greek is the praetorian God. It's the, 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 the elite Forces of the emperor, the, the, the equivalent of the, the SS in Nazi Germany, Hitler's personal forces in the Roman Empire, the emperor's personal security force, they've all heard the gospel and even more, it says. Isn't that incredible? And you see, here is what Paul gets. He doesn't see his trials as something that will hinder the gospel ministry. Okay, he doesn't think, oh no, I'm in jail now, so that means that God's awesome plan for my life has been derailed and I've just got to wait now very patiently in jail until I get set free so I can continue with God's plan in my life. No. He understands that his imprisonment, okay, his trial, as verse 13 says, is for Christ. He understands that it's God has put him in that cell. It's not an attack of Satan. God put him in there. 
And he's in that cell to endure those trials as a part of God's good and sovereign plan for his life. In fact, from God's perspective, everything is going just according to plan. Well, you presently enduring trials. Well, perhaps you may be thinking, well, how could God let this happen? Okay, or maybe you think, well, am I living in some way outside of, of God's will? Well, brothers and sisters, no. Everything is going just according to plan. Okay, remember Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3. God ordains everything that comes to pass. Everything. That's the good things and the bad things. Now remember from last week, God's will for your life is not that you live a happy and fulfilled life. Okay, it's not contrary to certain authors, Christian authors, to live your best life now. What is God's will for your life? Well, the Bible is... There's a memory verse here. You should stick it on your fridge or your mirror because it's very clear. Okay, the will of God for your life, 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, is that you become sanctified. Is your sanctification. Or that you become holy. So the, this means that those trials that you are facing, they've been permitted by the Lord for a reason. And what is that reason? It's not that God is this sadistic being who wants to inflict his children with horrible things. Not at all. God is a good father who wants his best for you. And his best for you is not necessarily what you may think it is. His best for you is your holiness. And so what that means is that those trials being permitted by the Lord, their reason is ultimately for good that you may become more holy, and that he may be glorified. And so instead of focusing on ourselves during trials, and that's our sinful tendency, is that we, we, we close in and we get into a, like a self-pity mode. Instead of doing that, in every trial that the Lord permits in our lives, God gives us opportunity in those trials, just like he did with Paul. And an opportunity that he gives us is that we may rejoice through those trials and that we may glorify Christ and use the trial in some way to advance his gospel. That's exactly what we see Paul doing. And that's why James 1, 2 to 4 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there we see the goal of our trials, the end point of our trials is, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, our sanctification. There's a goal to him. God is, is, is permitting them for a reason. And that reason is for his glory and our sanctification. This brings us to our second point. Gospel graciousness. Let's read from verse 14. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, the other way that the gospel has been advancing because of Paul's imprisonment is that, oddly enough, other Christians have now been emboldened to preach the gospel without fear. Now, you would have thought that the opposite would be true, right? That because the Roman Empire is making an example of this Christian Paul by locking him up in this dungeon, that this would send a signal to the other Christians to lay low because of the fear of the same thing is, is, is going to happen to them. But what happened? Well, the exact opposite happened. By putting Paul in jail, the Romans have, whether they liked it or not, they've, they've made him into a hero. And moreover, the Christians now realize, because Paul is writing letters from prison, he's enduring his imprisonment with joy. And he's continuing to preach the gospel to his captors. And so this is inspiring to the other Christians. Like, oh man, go Paul. And so they are then inspired to be even more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. And you know, it's, it's this pattern that actually we see throughout church history. And even present day in the world where Christianity is, is persecuted. Okay, the more Christians have suffered persecution, what's usually the case? Do they, does, the, 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 does the church fold? Far from it. Okay, the gospel advances and the church multiplies. And it was the African church father, Tertullian, who famously said in the second century AD, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. However, while some of these brothers in Christ have been emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to preach the gospel out of a pure motive, out of love, with a desire to see the gospel go to all peoples, or we see here now in the text is, well, there are others who have less than pure motives. And let's look at verses 15 to 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me and my imprisonment. So we need to remember that the Apostle Paul was a strong character. He was a strong leader. He was a pioneer of the early church. And strong leaders sometimes rub others up the wrong way. But specifically for Paul, the problem that he faced throughout his ministry was that not everyone recognized his apostolic calling. And the, this, this problem was probably due to the fact that, that he was a latecomer to the party. Okay, he had a unique testimony. Remember, he was violently persecuting the church as a Pharisee. He, and then Jesus appeared to him extraordinarily on the road to Damascus, where his life was, was changed forever. 
But not everyone, it seems, was, and then he was, you know, called as an apostle. Not everyone was, was convinced by that, it seems. And we see in places like 2 Corinthians 11, for example, where Paul has to defend his apostolic credentials to people in, in the Corinthian church. So it's, it's clear that Paul had many rivals in the church. Yeah, there were other brothers in Christ who were jealous of his influence. As he describes in verse 15, those are full of envy and rivalry. They had thought him unworthy to be an apostle. And now his opponents, they hear that he's locked up. And so they see an opportunity. And they see this opportunity then to increase their influence over his influence. And as the text says, to afflict him while he's in prison. And how do they think they're going to afflict him? Well, they proclaim Christ for their own selfish ambition, not in, in, in sincerity, as you see in, in verse 17. So it's sad that there can be this type of rivalry between Christians, you know, comparing each other's ministry, comparing churches, seeing who's got a greater impact, a, a bigger platform, a, a bigger influence, and in the process, stirring up jealousy among brothers in Christ. But how does Paul respond? Is he angry? Is he hurt? Is he stirred up to more, even more rivalry? No. Look at the last verse, verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So as long as Christ is preached, regardless of the motive, Paul rejoices in that. Isn't that such a gracious way to respond to people who deliberately set out with bad intentions? But what we must be clear on here is that Paul's rivals were truly preaching Christ. Okay, these guys were not heretics. Okay, they weren't preaching some watered-down gospel or false gospel. Because if you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, and especially the rest of, of Paul's letters... Paul has no time for false teachers. Again, okay, he reserves some choice words uh, for them, and he has no qualms about calling them out and even calling them out by name. I mean, just for example, yeah, Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 1 Timothy 4. One to two, the Spirit clearly says that in these later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. One Timothy 6.3, if anyone teaches false doctrines, and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, what is he? Well, he's conceited and he understands nothing. You want, you want some more? <laughs> okay. You get the picture. There are a lot more 
you know, on the, in the same vein here. And so for us too, we, we should not fear to call out false teachers today. Yeah, like those who preach the prosperity gospel, which is very prevalent in our context, or those who would preach so-called progressive Christianity, which is just liberal theology from the 19th century put in a microwave. Okay, these guys are preaching a false gospel. It's not beat about the bush. They're preaching a false Christ. They're preaching a Christ that, that doesn't save people from sins. They're preaching a Christ that is just an extra addition to make your life happy. And they're doing this, and the result is that they're leading people astray, and they're wolves in sheep's clothing. But it's important to understand that here, in this context, Paul's rivals are not false teachers. They're not those guys. Okay, they are fellow brothers in Christ who, who are faithfully preaching the true gospel. Okay, these guys are teaching correct doctrine. Okay, they're preaching the same apostolic message that they received from Christ himself. And that message is not some secret hidden only for super spiritual people to find out. It's been revealed for us in the pages of scripture. And that message, that apostolic message, the gospel, is this. That Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that on the third day he was raised and appeared to many. And that in his name there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this is all to be received as a gift of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. So even though their motives are wrong... Their message is correct. And for Paul, that's all that matters. Christ is being proclaimed. People are hearing the good news. Churches are being planted. There's no time for small-mindedness and getting bothered about rivalries for Paul. The advance of the gospel is so much more important. So we can certainly learn from Paul's graciousness here. You see, he turned another affliction. Okay, first affliction is that he's in prison. He turned the second affliction in also in an opportunity to advance the gospel. And so for us, let's rejoice when, whenever and wherever the gospel is faithfully proclaimed. Okay, even when it's in church contexts that are very different to ours. Okay, we should not see other brothers and sisters in Christ or other biblically faithful churches that may be slightly of a different flavor as competition. Okay, instead, we see them as on the same team to us, so what they are, indeed they are. And so therefore, we pray for them, bless them, love them. Our desire is that we want to see more faithful gospel preaching across Waterfall and the Upper Highway and, and Durban, because you know how desperately the church needs that. So to bring this down to land, what gave Paul and many thousands of other missionaries, despite enduring many trials, the courage to continue their races and finding joy in Christ and glorifying God in whatever the circumstance. Well, you know what? It wasn't some 
innate courage within themselves. Okay, they were all, Paul included, were weak people, they were sinful people, they were broken people like you and me. But instead, they looked, as Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, they trusted in Christ who also endured immeasurable suffering on the cross, and he did it with joy. And you may be thinking, well, how could Jesus have possibly gone to the cross with joy? I mean, the, the cross was, the crucifixion was the most brutal and barbaric form of execution. Jesus was utterly humiliated and, and, and vilified and experienced pain and you know, darkness that, that we can't even begin to possibly imagine. Well, how was he able to do it? Well, he was able to do it because he entrusted himself to his father's perfect sovereign plan. Okay, he knew that he wasn't at the mercy of some cold impersonal forces of, of fate. But he was in the hands of his good, loving father who had ordained every step of his life. And who was working out this despicable act into the greatest good. The crushing of the serpent, the breaking of the power of the sin and curse. And ultimately the salvation of God's people. You see, our sinful tendency is to avoid suffering. It's to shy away from sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And to cling instead to you know, very common 21st century Western idols. Idols of comfort and convenience. And even when we do endure trials, we, we think it's easy, it's easy to, to fall into pits of self-pity and self-centeredness. But what we see from this text is that God permits trials in our lives for our own good. To sanctify us and to turn them into opportunities to advance the gospel and to bring him glory. And the good news is that we are never alone in the midst of those trials. Hey, because our Savior Jesus also endured immense suffering, that means he is able to comfort us when we suffer. Why? Because he knows what it's like. That's why Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Now, as God uses our sufferings to work good, he used Jesus' sufferings for the ultimate good. So here are the words of, of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 45. Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. So not only has Jesus shared in our suffering, but he suffered in order to take our sins upon himself. And though we all, without reservation, deserve to be crushed for our sins, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus was crushed in our place on the cross. He was wounded for our iniquities. He died receiving the penalty for sins. But because he was sinless, the grave could not hold him down. And so God raised him up on the third day, defeating sin and death and forgiving sins. So friends, trust in Christ, our suffering servant. Trust in the one who draws near to you and comforts you right in the midst of your trials. And who promises in some way to work good through them. And trust in the one who even gives you joy in the darkest of times. Who empowers you by his spirit to, to graciously glorify God in your trials. And trust in him who suffered in your place on the cross. Who has forgiven your sins and who promises you eternal peace with God in the new creation. Amen.